Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're here with us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Doffenbaugh as he speaks on Fear God and Give Him Glory. Praise the Lord. It's a delight to be with each one of you today. I love you. God bless you. Let's say a prayer together. Father, we want you to come teach us your word and implant it into us so that it bears beautiful fruit for your glory and uh, edification of multiplied people around the world. Surround us now with your wonderful angelic guard and your ministering angels to help us receive and retain your word and then coach us, Holy Spirit, in the day-to-day application so that we're doers of the word, not merely hearers. This is our prayer. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the message is called Fear God and Give Him Glory. And I'm reading from Revelations 14, verse 6 through 7. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. You'll notice the, that what the angels are allowed to, to preach is a gospel, an eternal gospel about God being the creator. They know all about God being the creator because they were created, but they are not allowed to preach the gospel of the kingdom uh, about redemption because they, they have never been born again by the Spirit. But that's not really my point. My point is, if you want to be spared in the time of God's judgment, you must be someone who fears God and gives him glory. So that was the message. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Now, it's not a good idea to neglect giving God's glory until an angel announces that the hour of God's judgment has already arrived It would be much better to be living in the fear of God and habitually giving God glory in many ways so that you're totally ready uh, when the hour of judgment comes. That's my introduction. Here's my first point. Your choices now determine whether you'll receive blessings or terrible consequences. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, uh, this means that while there is a great day of the Lord when massive judgment falls, the process of God's wrath and judgment is ongoing every day of the year. Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed. Well, that's, that's true all the time. And then Paul wrote, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Paul then describes a downward progression that all starts when people knew God but didn't. Uh, glorify him as God or give thanks to him. It's a very negative downward progression. And uh, uh, first of all, then, when they won't thank God or give him glory, God gives them over to the stupidity of idolatry, which is really stupid to worship something that can't possibly save you or help you. And then the progression downward is into sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Then, because they exchanged the truth of God, about God, for a lie, 
God gave them over to shameful lusts so that the natural sexual relations were exchanged for unnatural ones. But that's not the end of the progression. Then because they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. And Paul writes, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Well, his list goes on, but you get the point. Now, the last step in that downward spiral is to be given spiral is to be given over to eternal destruction. Jude, the apostle, wrote in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. I always tell everybody, you know, somebody will be the nicest person that ever goes to hell. <laughs> they'll have sinned less than anybody else in hell, but they'll be still be stuck there for eternity in that torment. So don't just go around saying you're a good person because our goodness is not compared to other people. It's compared to the holiness of God. And uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So always be concerned about your soul and ask God to have mercy on you and forgive you. Well, now the opposite thing happens to those who give thanks to God and glorify him as God. Those people, hopefully us, have their hearts enlightened by the Spirit of God, and they become spiritually wise. And they aren't given over to demonic oppression, to bondage of sin and addictions. Instead, they live in freedom of the Holy Spirit, and they inherit an eternal kingdom of indescribable glory. Now, we should all practice thanking God with what I call thanksgiving drills. Um, for example, I, I like to uh, do a little drill where I say, "What thank you, God, for what you did for me in the past. And I name off something that I'm thankful for that you did years ago. Then I thank him for something that he's doing for me right now. And that could be that the electricity is still on or whatever. Then I thank God for what he's promised to do for me in the future. Now, wouldn't that be a great little drill to do that every once in a while? Thank God for what he did in the past, what he's doing right now, and what he's promised to do in the future. That sharpens you spiritually. Now, I, I often look around and thank God for things that we often take completely for granted, like electricity, soap, flush toilets, food, gas for our cars, even if it costs more, at least it's available, safety, and other things. I grew up on a cattle ranch, and it was, you know, every rancher carried a pocket knife, a jackknife you could open up, and, and most of the men would keep their knives real sharp. Well, a sharp knife doesn't happen accidentally. It's, it's uh, sharpened regularly. And similarly, if we want our minds and spiritual perceptions to be spiritually sharp, then we should sharpen them regularly by expressing gratitude to God and, uh, and also gratitude to others. And that habit of gratitude keeps us spiritually sharp. But how do we glorify God as God? Remember the, text, uh, the first scripture there from Romans 1. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So we know how to give thanks to him, but how do we glorify him as God? Well, there's many different ways, and I'm not going to give you an exclusive list, but I'm going to comment on some that have been on my heart and mind and my focus. All right, so here we go. We glorify God when we admit that we are God's creation. 
The Bible says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. He didn't create anything other than male and female, and God created everybody. Now, the psalmist says in Psalms 139, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now notice that God not only chooses your sex, but he ordains the days for you. He's got a plan and a destiny for you. God created each one of us and determined our sex, and it gives God glory when we acknowledge this. But in this day and age, many are saying, I have no creator, therefore I can determine what sex I will be. And then through hormonal treatments and or surgeries, they change their sexual identity, but no one can really change their sex because it's imprinted on every single gene in their body. Females have two X chromosomes in every cell, and males have one X and one Y chromosome, and that can't be changed with drug therapy or surgery or just identifying as the opposite sex. Now, attempting to change from one sex to another is very dangerous for a variety of reasons. The biggest reason is a spiritual reason. It means there's no fear of God, no respect for him, no giving him honor that he created you. And you see that psalmist in 139 said, I, I, I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Well, the people that want to change their sex aren't praising God for the way that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. They're trying to uh, disrespect that, dislike it, change it to something else. So then God is robbed of glory. Now, Paul wrote, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? That's Romans 9.20. And Isaiah wrote, you turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? Well, see, that's going on in the transgender theology, and that robs God of glory, the glory as creator, who determines sex by his choice, not ours. But besides the spiritual consequences of a darkened heart and a futile mind, there's the damage that the opposite gender hormones do to the body. Now, I'm going to give you a list of physical uh, things, and this is from a pro-LGBTQ website, all right? So this is not from some Christian conservative website. It says, Hormone therapy is often used to make a trans transgender person more masculine or feminine, but the use of hormones has risks. Testosterone can damage the liver, especially if taken in high doses or by mouth. Estrogen can increase blood pressure, blood glucose or sugar, and blood clotting. Antiandrogens, such as spironolactone, can lower blood pressure, disturb electrolytes, and dehydrate the body. And then it continues, transgender persons have higher rates of depression and anxiety compared to others. Teenagers and young adults have an increased risk of suicide. 
and it continues. Studies have shown that transgender persons have higher rates of alcohol abuse and dependence. <laughs> now, that's all from a pro-LGBTQ website. You just, you just can't... You can't escape the physical damage that's done when you're trying to add the opposite hormones. It's dangerous if you're a female to take female hormones. It's, it's, uh, there's risks if you're a male to take male hormones. But when you're switching, you are really magnifying the dangers. Now, another problem is the, the osteoporosis that happens when uh, puberty blockers are used on young teenagers or young even young children, to prevent them from going into puberty as a male or a female. Well, the, the damage to their bones is very terrible. They age very quickly, and, and uh, man, then they can fall and have fractures. Now, that kind of stuff is, is basically hidden in this culture that the Bible, you know, we started off with, they suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, there's just terrible physical damages, and I've learned then to be compassionate towards these people because, well, I feel sorry for them. Now, whenever God is not glorified as the creator, the consequences are going to be very negative. That's just a spiritual fact. You can't get around that. But if we cooperate with our creator, we'll find out what we are. We'll find out why we're here. And we can fulfill our God-given destinies. Now, everybody has a God-given destiny. I've been amazed when I've watched women's sports being destroyed by men with all their male plumbing and their bigger bodies and bigger muscles claiming to be women. I've been amazed that some prisons put men who have all their male plumbing right in the prison cells with women prisoners. I've been amazed that chain stores like Target allow men who claim to be women but have all the male plumbing are allowed to use the women's and girls' bathrooms. And, and so I, for a long time I've been focused on the great injustice of those things. But right now, my number one feeling, and all that is unjust, of course, but I feel compassion for people who believe that lie, take the drugs, have the surgeries, and then become, listen to this, lifelong cash cows for the corrupt pharmaceutical companies. I thought that this fad would surely fade. But finally, just recently, I realized there's lots of money to be made on every transgender person who must keep taking the conversion drugs. Now, if the drug companies are giving large political campaign donations to one particular party, then it pays that party to promote the transgender ideology so that they'll continue to get the political contributions and then they can continue to stay in power. Now, the victims are, are the people who fall for all that lie, take all the drugs, and then can't get off of them and never live out their complete God-given destiny because it's been hijacked by a spirit of lawlessness and a spirit of greed. Now, the spirit of lawlessness is the Antichrist spirit. The, 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 we're going to defund the police. Uh, we're not going to obey any laws whatsoever. And that lawlessness is, you know, when it says there, there's no God, there is no judge, uh, 
I won't obey any natural law even, let alone, uh, you know, and then we'll go in and we'll plunder the, and shoplift, uh, uh, you know, all, all the massive shoplifting that's going on in the United States. Well, that's lawlessness. But to get people hooked on something they can't get off of is the spirit of greed. It's like a cigarette company giving little samples of cigarettes to little kids to get them addicted to nicotine, and then they'll have a lifelong customer. And, of course, that's uh, society's come down really hard on that, but here they are, uh, so many uh, promoting this transgender theology. I just read that in New Jersey, the curriculum going to be given to fourth graders is to teach them that they can get on puberty blockers, which will absolutely ruin their health and their life. It's a tragedy. Now, I believe that we fear God and give him glory when we stand against the lie that people can choose their own sex and transition from one sex to another. Now, uh, you know, the, the, the world will have an, a, a fit over that, but that's just a fact. There is a creator God, and I'm not backing up on that, and he makes people male and female. The Washington Post, which is not a conservative uh, magazine, you know, it's a newspaper owned by uh, the, the, the creator of uh, Amazon, Bezos. But it printed an op-ed that was headlined, What I Wished I'd Known When I Was 19 and Had Sex Reassignment Surgery. Now, this young man had his male organs surgically removed, and so his name now is Corina Cohn. And it says that she expressed her regret over her transition from being a man to a woman, explaining that she wasn't old enough to make such a drastic decision and that it committed her to, quote, a lifetime apart, unquote, from her peers. And she wrote, Surgery unshackled me from my body's urges, but the destruction of my gonads introduced a different type of bondage. From the day of my surgery, I have... I became a medical patient and will remain one for the rest of my life, unquote. That's exactly what I'm saying. They're cash cows for the drug industry. Now, you can Google Corina Cohn, C-O-H-N, slash Washington Post, and I believe you can read her entire uh, op-ed there, which is, you know, it's a, a terribly sad article. Now, folks, listen, we need to be caring, loving people. We don't want to be condemning people. But if we care, then we condemn lies. We don't condemn the people that believe the lies. We feel compassion for them. But the lie will come against that. Now, we want to have very compassionate thoughts for those who've been deceived into ruining their God-given destiny and their health. I believe, of course, they can still be forgiven and go to heaven. It's just that their earthly destiny is pretty badly messed up. <laughs> well, if for some reason some transgender person is listening to this and you've already had the conversion therapies, go back to your creator and see what he'll do with you. He knows how to get us born again. He knows how to heal things. And uh, he would be the one to check in with as to how to salvage the rest of your uh, destiny that he planned for you. Now, we should earnestly be praying that the truth will be revealed so that this victimization of deceived youth is pushed back and does not continue 
to grow. Now, my third point is that we glorify God when we realize that the pollution of sin causes climate judgment, which is far worse than climate change. Now, you don't hear anybody in the media talking about climate judgment, but we all as Christians ought to talk about climate judgment because it's throughout the Bible. And I've been marking climate judgment in my Bible, and then, you know, if I, I, I could just make a huge long list of scriptures, but I'm going to give you a few. Now, in a culture that gives God no place, all weathers, weather disasters, whether heat or cold, flood or drought, are blamed on too much carbon being added to the atmosphere. And the same people who rail against the perceived pollution of too much carbon think nothing of polluting the world with sins that bring God's climate judgment. Now, I'll just give you a few biblical points. In Adam and Eve's day, when they disobeyed God, God cursed the ground because of their sin. The climate changed, but not because of carbon. It, sinned, it changed because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And then the, the world in Noah's time. You know, in Noah's day, from Adam till Noah, they were living approximately 900 years or more in some cases. But the Bible says the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, Genesis 6, 5. And so God destroyed the entire world with a flood that came from underground water. The great fountains of the deep were released and burst up and it rained 40 days and 40 nights. Not a localized flood. The entire world was deluged and destroyed. And uh, so the climate was changed because prior to the flood, God had said, I'm not going to strive with mankind forever. Their days shall be 120 years. In other words, I'll put up with them for up to 120 years, but that's enough. <laughs> And so the climate was changed. Why? Because of the sin of the human race. Not because now they were all burning wood back in, in the days up to Noah. I don't even think they mined coal. Maybe they did. Uh, but uh, coal or wood, they certainly didn't have nuclear power uh, or wind generators or, or uh, solar uh, generation. It, it was... But you see, no matter how much carbon they were adding to the air, that did not make God flood the world. That was because of sin. All right, now the prophetic scriptures tell us of massive climate judgments that are coming. And I'm only quoting a few, but from Second Peter it says, But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged, and destroyed by the same word the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly and then peter continued but the day of the lord means the day of his judgments will come like a thief the heavens will disappear with a roar the elements will be destroyed by the fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare there won't be any buried truth or hidden secrets now, since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter said, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness 
dwells. Second Peter chapter 3. Well, that doesn't mean we should go pollute the earth. We should be good stewards of what we have. But my point is, the modern world, the modern uh, Hollywood people, and, and the, all the pro-climate, uh, you know, environmentalists, and just so many of the people that you hear talking about saving the planet, saving the planet, well, then repent of your sin. Because what's going to destroy the planet completely is when the Lord uh, destroys the earth because of sin. Now, uh, look at, uh, it doesn't have to be the end time where God burns up the whole earth and makes a new earth. Lesser climate judgments are supposed to cause us to return to the Lord. So let's look at the book of Amos chapter 4. Amos uh, was prophesying and God spoke through him. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it on another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord." Uh, many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now, in our day, whether it's drought or famine, excessive rains, floods, blights, mildews, insects, plagues, everything is blamed on carbon dioxide emissions as a way of seeking political control and financial profit for those in control. Now listen carefully. This is why weather is getting more and more unpredictable and freakish because God continues to give climate judgment and in order to uh, make it uh, so that you can't just attribute it all to carbon, it ha the, the, climate will, the climate judgment will cause tremendous and strange, bizarre changes that then, then people will say, well, how did, how did carbon do all of this? It, well, well, it can't. It can't do all of that. God is trying to get people to repent. Now, as, listen to this. Folks, listen. As long as mankind rebels against God in blatant sin and idolatry, there will never be peace in the climate, regardless of what's done regarding carbon. If you had zero emissions, but you continue to pollute the world with idolatry and rebellion and murder and greed and all the things people do, you're going to have climate judgment. Now, somebody needs to be preaching that. <laughs> and we need to be believing that as Christians. And all of us should repent of our sins if we want to uh, prolong the days of planet Earth. Now, in the chapter uh, of 24 of Isaiah, it is entirely about climate judgment. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to read a portion. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the world. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore, earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. Well, now, if you keep reading through that chapter, you'll come to something good about the people who, who love and serve God. 
because in the, in the context of climate judgment, God has special blessings for his own people who are not polluting the world with sin and who are thanking him and are giving him glory. And so uh, this chapter also describes what God will do for them. So after it's talking about how the earth, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, just defiled by its people and it dries up and withers, and so many people are dying. It says, uh, talks about these people that will be aided by supernatural outpourings of God's grace. And it says, they raise their voices. They shout for joy. From the West, they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore, in the East, give glory to the Lord and exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we hear singing glory to the righteous one. That's Isaiah 24, 14 through 16. Now, they won't be singing praises to God because of climate judgment. They'll be singing praises because of God's targeted blessings that mixes his grace into problems and turns those problems into miracles. Now, my fourth point, we, and, uh, and I hope you'll bear with me through this point. It might shock you a little bit. We need to give God all the glory for our forgiveness. Now, you know if you know me at all, that I've been preaching a message called 21 Ways to Forgive all over America and sending the books by that title to chaplains in many, many prisons. We've put over 9,500 copies into the prison system and uh, 5,000 are being printed in Spanish. Because I teach and write so much about forgiveness, I am especially sensitive to error when I hear some people preaching about it. And I'm, listen to this now, Let's stick with me. I'm deeply grieved when I hear Christian people, especially Christian teachers and preachers, talking about the need to forgive yourself. Now, listen carefully. There's nothing in the Bible about forgiving yourself, not even one half of a verse. It's a doctrine that robs God of glory. But most do not realize this. They just nod along in agreement when it says, now you need to forgive yourself. No, you don't forgive yourself. Here's what you do. You repent and God does the forgiving. And then you do the celebrating of the forgiveness. You see, it took a blood sacrifice of the very Son of God to purchase your redemption and pay the price for your forgiveness, a massive price you could never, ever pay. And when God forgives you, he destroys the records of your sin completely so that it no longer exists. And he removes your sin as far as east is from the west. Now, I'm going to read from Colossians chapter 2. And Paul wrote, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, the, the, the charge of our legal indebtedness stood against us and was the armament of evil spirits and Satan himself that was used to condemn us. So when God forgives you, and you stand in that rejoicing, Satan has no weapon of condemnation to use against you because the record of your sin no longer exists. It's been taken away and Satan has been disarmed. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's been disarmed. Why? Because your sins have been completely forgiven and removed and there's no record. 
And that's why Satan whispers, now you need to forgive yourself. That brings it back up again, you see. That doesn't result in forgiveness. It results in condemnation. You cannot cancel the debt of your sin. You can't pay a price of an infinite blood sacrifice necessary to remove your sin. You can't nail it to the cross. You can't remove it as far as east is from the west. But you can repent and receive that forgiveness, then stand fast in that and celebrate your forgiveness. Never take any lip off the devil. Never. If he says, now you need to forgive yourself, say, shut up. There's nothing to forgive. There is no record. You have no ammunition against me. You have no armor against me. You stupid accuser. I bind you in the name of Jesus. Shut up and get away. Now, believe me, witches, warlocks, spiritual mediums, atheists would all quickly agree with anyone who says, now you need to forgive yourself. Why? Well, because that robs God of glory. God gets no glory out of you forgiving yourself. That leaves God completely out. It robs him of glory, but it also puts the debt and condemnation of sin back on the person attempting to do it. So, dear friend, listen. You do the repenting. God will do all the forgiving. And then you do the celebrating. And that will give glory. That'll give God the glory to his name. All right, let's go to the fifth point. Never mess with the desires in someone else's heart. (laughs) The strongest rebuke that I've ever received in my life came through a wonderful man of God named Don Cox. He was an evangelist, and he was referred to as the miracle man. The gift of working of miracles operated in his life and ministry. Now, when I was a young associate pastor, Don came to speak at our church several times in Goshen, Oregon. And one time after one meeting, the pastor was driving him back to Portland Airport, and I went along for the ride. I was sitting in the back seat. And Don kept saying, God wants to grant the desires of your heart to get glory for his name. Now, he kept saying that over and over, over and over. And after about 10 different times, I spoke up from the back seat and said, Don, if that's true, could it possibly be God's will to let my wife have a horse? Now, she'd been wanting a horse, and I'd been telling her that that was too expensive, that we needed to give all of our money to missions, and that sounded spiritual to me. But Don turned around and began to poke me in the chest like men do when they're ready to fist fight. And he said, don't you, he snarled at me, don't you ever mess with the desires in someone's heart. God lets those desires be there so he can grant those desires and get glory for his name. And then he lunged at me. I was in the back seat. He turned around and just lunged and shouted in my face, would you, and he was thumping me the whole time, would you actually steal glory from God? And the pastor just about rolled the car. It was so violent. Well, he didn't roll the car, thank God. And I, I spoke up. The pastor thought the evangelist was insane, like, like, who let you out of your cage, you crazy wild man? And I said, it's all right, pastor. It's all right. I accept the rebuke. <laughs> so I, I just kind of went home trembling after I got back. And I, I went in the house and I said to Bonnie, I've changed my mind. I'm going to let you have a horse. <laughs> and she said, I know. And God's going to give me a free one. Now, many of you may have already heard this story because I've told it all over the country for years. But... Uh, She was practicing Don's teaching to, number one, ask God, and then number two, thank God for hearing, and then number three, go looking for your miracle. And he emphasized that miracles are found, and he'd often quote Jesus, seek and you will find, Matthew 7, 7. So Bonnie, uh, you know, 
we went looking for her free horses, and I finally got tired of going with her because I didn't believe there was such a thing. So she took another woman, and one day she called from a, uh, you know, from a nearby town, and she said that a couple wanted to sell four horses for four hundred dollars. Well, this couple had been feeding the horses uh, for nine years, and uh, nobody'd ridden them in nine years. So I bought four horses, five tons of hay, a feed box, an old decrepit saddle, and some bridles and brushes for six hundred dollars total. And then I sold the two oldest horses at an auction and got $585, almost all the money back. The saddle was stolen out of an unlocked shed on a friend's property, but my homeowner's insurance sent a check for replacement value for $295. So I bought a hand tools, nice used saddle hand tool from my dad's neighbor in South Dakota for $150. Much better saddle, and then I used the 145 extra to hire a horse trainer for one month because that third horse was a full-blood quarter horse registered mare, nine years old, but had never been broke to ride. We uh, paid that guy the trainer for one month and sold her for $400 as a saddle horse after she was only worked with for one month by a trainer. Now, we looked around, and we had one free horse, so it was a black uh, 12-year-old rideable mare, and we had five tons of free hay, a free saddle, free bridles, free brushes, and 400 extra dollars. And so we bought some used lumber at a, at a creamery they were tearing down, and we built a, a small barn and a corral for free. <laughs> now, we'd been married six years and had been unable to conceive a child, but uh, Bonnie had those horses for only two weeks and conceived our oldest daughter, Heather. So now we have two daughters, three grandsons, and a beautiful granddaughter. Now, let me ask you a question. Do we ever mess with the desires in someone's heart and in so doing steal glory from God? Now, notice how much I was blessed when I cooperated with the desire that God allowed Bonnie to have. God was really glorified as he fulfilled her desire, and I ended up being blessed with two daughters and four grandsons and two son-in-laws. Now, Paul wrote, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Now, when we are supportive and encouraging to the interests and dreams of others, we work with God as he seeks to glorify his name by granting those righteous desires. The psalmist wrote, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalms 34, 4. But what about helping someone else find, receive, or achieve the desires of their heart? I think we overlook this key way of bringing God glory. Wouldn't you agree? Don't you think we overlook? See, we think, yeah, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. But the Bible says, be interested in somebody else's interests. And we overlook that way to glorify God. But when we'll cooperate like I did with God to help Bonnie get her dream desire, I was greatly blessed. All right. Now let's let's ask ourselves, am I focused on receiving the desires of my heart or do I seek to encourage and help others believe and receive the desires of their hearts? What a great question. If you can help someone believe and receive the desires of his or her heart, you will have brought God glory in a very special way that carries a great reward. Now, like Paul, 
let us show interest in the interests of others in a way that's encouraging and faith-building so that these interests are, uh, these desires are received and achieved to God's glory. Now, my sixth point is we need to sing to the Lord to bring him glory. Now, recently I had a dream that impressed me. And in the dream, I was supposed to be meeting people at a choir practice. I was supposed to lead the choir practice. And there was a huge amount of adults showing up for practice. And I was totally, completely unprepared. I was looking frantically for some old song that was used in the days when I directed a choir because that was my very first ministry when... Uh, when a pastor uh, turned over an adult choir to me. And not long after that, I became a bus captain, later an associate pastor. But the very first ministry that I was given on a regular basis was to direct a choir. Now, in that dream, uh, I had dreamed that I was able to play up and down the fret of a guitar, the fretboard of a guitar, without hindrance. And and in the dream, I could... uh, if I could hear it in my head, I could play it on the guitar, which is not the case and never has been the case. <laughs> but all I could say to that big bunch of people that had come out for the choir is that I believed God had opened a new door for me in the Spirit uh, and that I was going to really get with it and then they were going to have to come back and then I was going to effectively lead them in praise at some other time. Well, when I woke up, that that really got to me. Now, for some time, I've been thinking about what I could do to resurrect the musical ministry gifts that God has placed in me. I've written a lot of beautiful songs. And uh, Don Cox, the man that rebuked me so hard, he had a vision of me presenting a finished songbook to a group of people that had a beautiful cover, and then God showed him people all over the world in their native costumes singing those songs. And he told me, you're going to write a songbook, and and the music's going to go around the world. Well, that was in 1978. I wrote the songbook, published the songbook, sold a thousand copies. But uh, to this day, you know, it's never really gone around the world. I, I, I just went through so many trials and stuff that that particular vision practically got beat completely out of me. But I have written some of the most beautiful songs that have such great content in the, in the word of the great content of God's word in the song. So I've been thinking about uh, singing to the Lord as a way to bring him glory. Now, Anna Roundtree wrote an inspiring book called Heaven Awaits the Bride, and in it she shares a vision of her and Jesus in a garden, and the spiritual garden represented her own individual love for him because she asked, who tends this garden? And he said, you do. (laughs) So it was a spiritual representation of her devotional life with the Lord. And uh, he said to her, I've been waiting for you, Anna. The loneliness you have experienced is nothing compared to the heartache I experienced as I waited for you, seeing you run after all matter of idols to seek satisfaction. And he looked out at the garden, how I called to you. There was pain in his voice. Year after year you dallied, and I grieved, waiting for you to realize that no one or no one can or ever will bring you life itself, but me alone. And his words struck me to the heart, she writes, and she, and she said, my Lord and my God, I said quietly, no one has ever loved me as you have. 
I was choked with emotion. Slowly, I continued, nor has anyone ever desired my company as... But I could not finish, she writes. And then Jesus spoke again, none of flesh and blood can, Anna, for you belong to me. He looked me in the eye and his eyes pierced through me. I created you for myself and only I can satisfy you truly and fully. I did not know what to say, she wrote. I I searched, trying to think of some reply. Finally, I asked, if I'm created for you, Lord, what can I do for you? How? I groped for words to convey what I that I wanted to give a gift to him. How do I give something to you? He searched my face for a moment and then smiled. Sing for me, Anna. That would comfort me. He leaned back against the large apricot tree and closed his eyes. I did not know what to sing. I swallowed hard. Then I looked out over the garden and prayed within myself. Soon, without knowing what I would say, I began to sing. Now listen to the poetry of this. It's a beautiful poem. I don't know the melody, but I can read the words. Where golden light becomes the red, and red becomes the white, burning with the zeal of love, a land devoid of night, powering the universe from star to distant star. Consume the dross, O ancient one. Let no aberrance mar. All that belongs to you alone, created by your word, all that is seen and understood, all hidden and unheard. Consume the sin, O ancient one. Consign it to the night. For us there's oneness with our God, the everlasting light. No shadow dare exalt itself, no darkness dare display, where God eternal rules and reigns the land of endless day. Praise him, all you heavenly hosts. Praise him, sons of men. Turn your faces toward the sun, God's yes and his amen. Now that's beautiful poetry, to be sure. That's a song given by the Spirit of God. And, you know, a few days I was a few days ago I was calling pastors in Montana because I wanted to get a meeting in Montana. And I talked to a, a pastor who pastors in a church up by Glacier National Park, and he said that when he was a boy, I held a meeting in Prairie City, Oregon at the Assembly of God Church, and I sang some of the songs God had given me, and he was quoting those songs. Now, that's been almost 50 years ago because it would have been the last half of 1979 or or, or 1980. And he was quoting the song Crash Into Heaven and the song The Blackberry Song. (laughs) And and that's the second pastor I've met that was in that meeting and 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 could remember those songs from all those years and uh anyway it was just like a reminder saying look i I gave you some important stuff i want you to i want you to resurrect it i want you to lead people in praise and worship well i want to sing i want to bring god glory by singing to him again and by leading others in singing songs of worship And uh, the psalmist wrote, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Psalms 96. So I'm doing something this month. Now I have four musical albums uh, of my original songs. And uh, 
they're priced at $8 each. But this month, we're going to offer all four for $18 each, and that will include the shipping. So for $18, we'll send you all four of the music CDs, and, uh, and we'll pay the shipping. Now, I want you to have them because uh, these songs were, I believe, inspired by the Spirit of God, and they're full of the Word of God. And I believe they'll have a wonderful spiritual impact on your life. And then you can pray for me as you listen to the songs. Pray for me that I could uh, somehow uh, get things on the internet um, and, and get people and lead people in worship again. And then pray that I could understand uh, music theory in such a way because I could write so many songs if I was just able to play what I hear in my head. Now, my seventh point, and it's my last point, is trust fully in the Lord when things look scary. That really glorifies God when we refuse to worry, refuse to get fearful. We, we trust him with all of our heart, and, uh, and we expect him to get us through, whether it's the fire, the flood, or the earthquake, or whatever. Now, I have a perception. I'm not saying this as a prophetic word. It's a the best way I can describe it, there's a, there's a perception in my heart that soon the U.S. dollar is no longer going to be used as the reserve currency of the world. Now, people have been saying that for years, but the dollar has hung on. But it's been being eroded. Now, uh, you see, our nation has abused the privilege of, of having our dollar be the reserve currency for the world. And, and so we've uh, overspent and just printed money and that means we've basically stolen money from other countries that had to have their money in the dollar. And then we'd devalue the dollar and they'd lose money, but we'd enrich ourselves. Well, China is actually a bigger trading partner now than the U.S. And China's international influence is becoming greater than that of the United States. Arab nations and especially Russia no longer want to use the dollar as a reserve currency. And, and Russia... Um, you know, would, would like to damage us. And really the biggest way they could damage us is to work with China to stop using the dollar as a reserve currency. My perception is that this is just around the corner, that this isn't going to delay much longer. Now, when that new system is developed, as it's in the process of being developed, our government will not be able to spend more than they take in. This all this overspending by trillions of dollars will stop immediately. Many entitlement programs then won't be funded. And the political pirates that have taxed so greatly and then overspent, you see, they're sinking the financial ship of this nation. But I, I think that the anger at lost entitlements is going to boil over into just very, very terrible, turbulent times. And so trouble like we have not known in America in our lifetimes is awaiting just ahead on the trail. Now, it's as if we're going down a smooth, gentle river in a rubber raft, but we're headed to a stretch of number five rapids. <laughs> now, rapids are measured uh, uh, from one to six, and, and a number six rapid is basically impossible. It's like a suicide mission to go in any floatable device and try to go through a number six rapids. You'll probably get killed. Number five is, is as rough as it gets where you have a chance of survival. <laughs> now, I go to bed early 
almost every night and uh, so I can get up early and spend three hours with the Lord. And as I read my Bible, I find so many portions of Scripture that promise God's help in difficult and terrible times. Now, we'll be okay if we're fully trusting in the Lord, but those who trust in themselves or those who trust in money, nothing is going to be adequate except the individual care and blessing of Almighty God for his own children. See, you can't outsmart uh, what's coming. It's going to take God helping us, protecting us. Well, when we read Isaiah 34, it contains a great warning for those who trust in the wrong things, but it has a great promise for those who trust in God alone. So here's a portion from Isaiah 34. Since you have rejected this word and since you've put your trust in oppression and crookedness and have relied on them, therefore this wrongdoing will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall, whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant, whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take fire from a hearth or scoop water from a cistern. Now that's verses 12 through 14. But then verse 15 through 17 says, this is what the Lord, the Holy One of Israel has said. In repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And, and you said, we will ride on swift horses. Therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. 1,000 will flee at the threat of one man. You will flee at the threat of five until you are left like a signal post on a mountaintop and a flag on a hill. And then verse 18, now listen to this. Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Verse 19, the second part of the verse he will certainly be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. And then verse 25 to 26, on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. And the light of the moon will be like the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the wounds he has inflicted. Now that's Isaiah 34. You should read the whole chapter. But notice that when people do not give glory to God by trusting in him, but instead trust in the arm of the flesh or even in oppression and crookedness, God's judgment comes upon them and is inescapable. They can pursue or uh, they can flee uh, but uh, the judgment pursues them faster than they can flee. But for those who glorify God by fully trusting in him, God rises. He stands up to show them compassion. And compassion is defined as love using its power to help. So if you say, God loves me, well, that's great. But God has compassion on me is greater because that means he's not just feeling sorry for me. <laughs> he's using his power to help me. And it says he rises to show us compassion. Praise God. And then in the context of judgment, when the towers fall, it says streams of water will flow on the mountain heights. Uh, streams of running water. 
I'll read it. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water. Now, how many of you know streams don't run over the top of the mountains or over the top of the hills? That's an impossible place for streams. Streams run down in the valleys. But when the towers fall, when, when the big mankind and their greatest prideful achievements are falling apart, God is going to make streams of grace run over the top of the biggest problems. And then when it says, you know, that the moon will be like the sun, the sun will shine seven times brighter. Well, if the sun was actually seven times hotter, we'd all be burned up. So that has to be talking about the light of God's face and, and his grace given to people. Seven times more grace in a time when the towers are falling. Now, if you'll get up and spend time with God, go to bed early so that you can get eight hours of sleep and get up early. If you go to bed at eight, you can get up at four. Go to bed at nine, you can get up at five. But you can have some great, wonderful times every day with the Lord. And you'll see that trusting God really glorifies God. And what happens when you thank God and glorify God? You get blessed. You get helped. You get fellowship with God. You get peace and contentment. And ultimately, you inherit the entire kingdom. Well, I want to be a person that gives God glory every possible way. I want to thank him and give him glory and have him use me somehow to bring massive glory to his name. I pray that you'll feel the same way. It's not about how long we live or how much pleasure we have or how many possessions we have. It's all about does our life bring God glory. That's what will be an eternal memorial to to God's uh, grace and his name. That's what really, really counts. Now, let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll just help us fear you and give you glory every possible way. And we thank you then that you're going to give us protection and provision and the fellowship of your spirit and amazing grace that runs over the top of every problem, no matter how big. Hallelujah. We love you, Lord. Now let's say his name together. In Jesus' name. Well, folks, I love you. God bless you. If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com. Or you can write P.O. Box 485, Cresswell, Oregon, 97426.